Catholics comprise roughly 23% of the U.S. population, and the Catholic vote has picked the winner of nine in the last 10 presidential elections. Still, since Catholic choices mirror the national results, many question whether there is such a thing as a distinctive Catholic voting bloc. Join us as Loyola's Hank Center hosts a conversation via Zoom that will draw more deeply on distinctions among the many subgroups of Catholic voters, the issues that concern them, and the regions in which they vote. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley, in this uh, nice, crisp fall weather we're having this week. I am loving it. Me too, and I know you're keeping up your running routine with this great weather. You know, I actually am, right? yeah. Uh, surprisingly, oh, yeah? yeah. I don't know why you said that like I, I wouldn't be. <laughs> but I, because the last time I told you I went on a run, you replied, gross? Well, it is always <laughs> gross, even when the weather is perfect. But I was arguing with Father Sundrup this week about the virtues of fall. He, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'm in a good mood. You know, like the weather's broke. And he's like, ugh, you like fall. I forgot. Every, who doesn't so, like fall? It's like superior I, in every single way. I agree. Um, so yeah. if those of you who are streaming Father Sundrup's masses want to just like submit some <laughs> petitions for an extended fall season into yeah. uh, his parish's prayers, I would uh, support that. That said, we're not really having a fall drink quite yet, are we, Zach? No, we're holding on the summer. So we're drinking margaritas, which was recommended to us by our guests. But before we get into that drink, I feel like you should introduce who we're talking to this week, Ashley. Yes. Our guest this week is Scott Detrow. He is a political correspondent for NPR, where he covers the 2020 presidential campaign and co-hosts the NPR Politics Podcast. Yes. Uh, real fans of the show, and by, you're all real fans, but the oldest fans of the show may remember him from... <laughs> 2017. He was one of our first guests. He was. He was pretty early on. And I always, uh, you know, treasure those early guests because they came on when we were not exactly established and when we didn't really know what we were doing. And for Scott, like a radio professional to take a risk on a little rinky dink podcast like ours, I'm very grateful for. Yeah, really meant a lot Uh, then. And it means a lot now today. Um, So Last time he was on the show, he brought us the official gin martini of NPR hosts, um, which was a pretty strong drink, if you recall, Mm -hmm. Ashley. (laughs) Yep. And we asked Scott what we should be drinking for his episode this week, and he said, well, the true drink of 2020 is coffee, but his favorite drink of the year is a simple stripped-down margarita. So we've got some white tequila, some simple syrup a lime with some salt on the rim. Although I'm pretty sure that Ashley, you definitely forgot to put the salt on the rim. If I know you, I never remembered you because you have to remember to do it before you pour the drink because you have to, it does require (laughs) discipline and foreknowledge, even if, but they always put salt on the rim at the end of the recipe, which is sort of, yeah, setting up for failure. (laughs) Um, but it is really delicious and it is maybe just a little bit less strong than the gin martini, but not much. And if anyone deserves a strong drink, it's someone covering the presidential election. Oh my goodness, no (laughs) kidding. So let's uh, cheers to all the uh, campaign journalists out there. Yep, cheers. All right, but before we get to our interview with Scott, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? 
So earlier this week, in a letter approved by Pope Francis, uh, Cardinal Robert Seurat, who is a top Vatican official, called on bishops worldwide to bring back in-person mass as soon as circumstances around the coronavirus pandemic permit. Right. And in this country, uh, some places have already started reopening their churches in a limited way. Um, At least one diocese in Wisconsin, I believe, is going to reinstate the obligation for Catholics to attend Mass every Sunday if they aren't sick or at high risk. But even if Mass gets back to something kind of like normal, that doesn't necessarily mean everyone's going to go back to their old habits. Um, And a new poll gives us some hints about how young people are thinking about going back to Mass. Yeah. CARA, which is the Center for the Applied Research in the Apostolate, released a new survey that found that 36% of young Catholics said that they will attend Mass less often after the pandemic. Right. So that's the headline. Uh, it's also the case that 50% say they will uh, their habits will stay the same, and 14% say they will attend Mass more frequently. Um, but I think, you know, the thing that concerns people who care about the future of the church is that 36%. So we wanted to talk about like why, what might be motivating people to change their habits after this pandemic. Yeah. And maybe just for context, uh, before the pandemic, 13% of Catholics age 18 to 35, that's how they're defining young Catholics. So 13% of that demographic attends mass weekly. Another 20% attends at least once a month, and 67% attended no more than a few times a year. Right. And what was interesting about this 30% of young Catholics who say they're going to attend Mass less frequently after the pandemic is that they kind of cut across all of those categories. So there are a certain percentage of people who used to go to Mass every single week before the pandemic who are now thinking they might cut back on that, um, which is, you know, an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah. And Kara asked... Those surveyed, the young Catholics surveyed, who belonged to a parish, whether anyone from the church had reached out to them during the pandemic, and only 34% said that someone had reached out to them, which one could read into that as a direct correlation to the number of people that say they're going to attend Mass less Mm -hmm. often. How would Um, you have responded to this survey, Zach? I I mean, I am. there is a question about in the survey about whether the pandemic has changed your faith or not. I would say it's definitely like changed my faith, but not in any like outward way in terms of mass attendance. I guess I I haven't really thought about whether I'm, I I mean that, uh, that wasn't even a question. Like once I feel like it's safe to go back to mass, I'm definitely going to be there just because Mm -hmm. of my own spirituality. And like, I, I need mass to keep me accountable. I need the Eucharist. I need the community. And I have found this sort of wandering through the desert, live streaming to be very not fulfilling. Uh, So as soon as I'm going able to get back, I will be there. What about you? Yeah, no, I, 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 we kind of touched on this last week um, in our, (laughs) in our epic desolations of our return episode. Um, So yeah, I'm definitely, I've just, you know, I've described myself on the show, I think before as like more religious than spiritual. So I definitely depend on the mass as like a place where I'm, of like forced into prayer um but i'm also like a a creature of very strong habit and i do worry about just like the fact that i've gotten out of this habit i i I, you know i think i'll get back into it in fact i mean i went to mass last sunday um and it was great (laughs) but i can see how this period of time would change someone's relationship with that habit yeah and so we 
alerted this story to our Jesuitical Facebook group because we wanted to know what the young Catholics in that group were thinking. Um, and we got some like really thoughtful responses that kind of filled out some of the numbers that the survey reported. So we just want to read some of them here. Javier said that he plans to move away soon, so it'll be nice to check in on his old parish and participate in faith groups and Bible study online. So it's actually been like a benefit that's come from that um, because more content's going to be online so people can check in when they're away. Because I think that, I, and I think that's actually a good point. Mm-hmm. You know, young adults in particular live these sort of transient lives where they're often moving several times um, in different geographic locations. And so looking for ways to stay connected to a more semi-permanent church community with more of that online, I think that's actually going to to help a lot of things. Yeah. And one of my favorite responses came from Sophia, who said, like, she does plan to go back to mass, but this period of you know, virtual mass has given her the chance to attend with her long distance significant other, which I thought was like a really nice thing. Uh, and I can imagine like being in the position of like not wanting to lose that when real church reopens. Yeah. And Melissa chimed in and said, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I've been so disheartened by the impact of this election on our local parish. And so I think that's probably a, an experience that other Catholics have throughout the United States that parish life can be a little bit polarizing or partisan, and it's difficult to feel at home for a lot of people. But there are, I I guess there are a couple things that I want to say about this poll. One is, I want to just say to every respondent, it's like, who knows? You know what I mean? Like, we're all trying to make plans for what life should look like after the pandemic. And, you know, people are inviting people to weddings and vacations, and we're planning holidays and football seasons. And the truth is, we just have no idea what life is going to look like, right? Like, this could all change. And the, if the past six months have taught us anything, that is definitely the case. However, this should be a long-awaited alarm bell for people in the church because we have neglected young adults in parish life for a very long time right now. And this pandemic might be the thing that pushes a significant chunk of people who are already just maybe had one foot standing in the doorway, it's going to, they're going to, they're going to walk right out. Yeah. And I feel very lucky because I am part of a parish that has, has been working really hard to, to reach their parishioners during, during this time. Um, but I think it's clear from, um, the survey and just anecdotally that that's, you know, can be pretty unique, especially. Yeah. Like, like you said, for young adults who, you know, aren't getting married, aren't having kids baptized, there's not a lot for them there in parish life. I guess one thing I do wonder about is like, okay, mass is not a social club. <laughs> like, do are we demanding too much? Like, is isn't it enough that like we're having the Eucharist? And no, no, it's not. <laughs> I mean, yes, if, I mean, sure, it's enough in some esoteric sense, but like, you could you can pop in and out and get the Eucharist and treat it as like a grab and go station if you want. But if you're looking to live as part of the the church community. Yeah, no, we're not asking too much. And I I don't want to be too hard on parishes here because I also want to encourage young adults who are thinking about whether or not this fits into their life. Like, yes, it should. And even if the parish is not making a ton of efforts to come at you, they need you, right? And so I will say that on behalf of all the parish workers, they want you there, they need you there, they might not know how to work the technology to find you. And so please, if to the extent that you're able, present yourself, offer your gifts, because the church is going to be so much less without you there. Yeah. Think of think of the church as that friend you haven't heard from 
in a while and are a little bit worried about. Yes. So <laughs> give them another chance. Shoot them another text. <laughs> Amen. All right. What's our next story, Ashley? This week, America Magazine published an editorial on the 2020 election and the historic choice facing Catholic voters in the United States. In it, the editors write, President Trump has undermined the constitutional order to a degree unprecedented in modern U.S. history, which prompts the editors of this review to register this unprecedented warning. Uh, Because this is unprecedented, we thought we would bring on the editor-in-chief of America Magazine, uh, Father Matt Malone, to talk about uh, what went into this editorial and what he's thinking about the 2020 election. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Matt. Thank you very much. Apparently, I have to do something unprecedented to to get an invite on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You are now in the top tier. This is your third appearance. I don't know what else you want. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) So, as I read in that quote, this is an unprecedented warning. So, let's start with what the precedent was. Uh, What what has America's approach been to covering presidential elections in the past? Well, America's always focused on issues instead of candidates. And uh, we have talked about the issues really from uh, the point of view of our, our Catholic faith, our Jesuit spirituality, but also from our experience as, as Americans, as, as Catholics in the American church, which uh, was and remains in uh, important ways a church of immigrants. And, you know, for, for our forebears and for our fellow Catholics who are coming to these shores today, the Constitution uh, was seen and is seen as a bulwark against uh, tyranny, as a bulwark against the kinds of political and economic oppression that people were fleeing then and now. So we've always taken an interest in uh, constitutional questions at America. What is unprecedented about this period is what we see, uh, the editors, as the principal issue of the election is inseparable from the person of the president of the United States. Um, And that is because, unlike almost all of his predecessors, um, this president has has undermined the constitutional order of this country um, in in unprecedented ways. And we we talk about them in in the editorial. Um, You know, we, we lived through Watergate. We lived through the uh, turmoil around the Vietnam War. We lived through Iran-Contra. There have always been moments, presidents of both parties, who have tested constitutional boundaries, who have occasionally broken constitutional rules um, in order to facilitate their self-interest or what they perceive to be the national interest. But we have never had a president who routinely does it, who announces it, who publicly says that he has no regard for uh, the constitutional processes and uh, for the conventions that have grown up around the Constitution over this nation's history. And, and we see that as a, as a new danger that is unique to President Trump. So last week on the show, we talked about religious institutions and nonprofits staying out of the business of endorsing political candidates. It's, this sounds extremely critical of, of President Trump. Is, is this an endorsement of his opponent, Joe Biden? Well, we also take time in the editorial to mention our disagreements with Mr. Biden. But I think that it's pretty clear that um, we have a choice between a flawed candidate and Mr. Biden, who will nonetheless respect the constitutional order, and a flawed candidate and Mr. Trump, who, who does not, has a track record of not doing that. 
But I would not say that it is an endorsement of Mr. Biden. We have serious disagreements with him. It's an endorsement of the Constitution of the United States. And at this particular moment in the history of the United States, uh, it, it is under serious threat due to the conduct and the decisions of Mr. Trump and his administration. This is going to sound a little odd, especially in, in, in full disclosure, listeners. Ashley and I, we're, we're on the editorial board of the magazine. So this, <laughs> this editorial was also written in our voice. Uh, one tough question I think people might have is that, you know, Catholics have pretty clear moral moral teachings, but there's not necessarily a clear endorsement of the U.S. form of government. And so mm-hmm. why would that be the basis for a Catholic magazine's warning against President Trump? Because that's where the threat is. Uh, we have serious, I mean, that that is where the existential threat is to the country. I mean, we have serious disagreements with the president about a whole host of issues, and we have given voice to them in our editorials. We also uh, like some of the things that he's done, uh, and we evaluate those from our point of view as Catholics and our Jesuit spirituality. But the, in our judgment, the, the existential threat to the republic is a, of a constitutional nature. I would say that the Constitution, these constitutional questions that we're talking about, they are, they're, they're also not merely questions of, of civil law. There, there are deep moral principles embedded. Uh, within that constitutional framework uh, that have to do with accountability, transparency, honesty, and having a a respect for the will of voters. Um, In in a sense, we are talking about it as religious people because we know as religious people that the United States of America was not founded by God and it's not a divine institution. It's a human one. And uh, it it will only uh, survive and thrive to the extent that... um, that we remain true to its founding principles and the conventions that have developed over time to uh, ensure that we do. Yeah. It's not hard to imagine in this extremely polarized time how how an editorial like this will be received by people on both sides of the aisle. It, it's hard to kind of build the bridges that Pope Francis has called for. What do you see as the role of either America magazine as a media ministry in particular, or the Catholic Church uh, more broadly um, in the next few weeks as as we grapple with these questions as a country um, in the lead up to the election? Well, for, first of all, I should just add to what I just said, that I, I do believe as a general principle that clergy should not endorse candidates uh, in, in elections, and that's one of the reasons why America doesn't. Um, but also, the ministry that we have at America isn't a parish and it's not the ministry of a bishop. It is the ministry of a communications organization that is charged with leading a conversation from a Catholic perspective among people who have different opinions. And I do believe that a journal of opinion ought to have an opinion of its own. And that's what we've ventured forth here. So I think the opportunity for America specifically is to demonstrate that uh, you can be a Catholic Uh, And that it does not necessarily mean that you must be beholden to either political party. And that you can also uh, believe in what I would call, in a loose way, the American way, the constitutional order of this country. And that our dedication to those principles transcends our Catholicism. Um, For the church, I think that there is an opportunity to not only talk about the issues that we care about, but to, but to bear witness to a different, a different way of talking about them. 
one that is more intelligent and and civil. This is a hard hitting editorial, but it is civil and it's respectful of the president and his role in the constitutional system. Um, but it, it, it voices its profound disagreement with his conduct. Well, and we want to encourage our listeners to read that editorial in its entirety and join the conversation on America's website. The title is Donald Trump is a unique threat to the Constitution, and you can read that. We'll link to it in our show notes, but it's also featured prominently at americamagazine.org. Matt, thank you so much for your leadership and for joining us on the show today. It was my pleasure. And I should also say when folks go there to our website to read that editorial, they will find views that differ from our own and that is an important part of what we do. Very good point. All right. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Take care. Coming up next, we talk with Scott Detrow from NPR about the 2020 election. Stick around. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Scott Detrow. Scott is the political correspondent for NPR, where he covers the presidential campaign and co-hosts the NPR Politics Podcast. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Scott. I'm glad you guys had me back. I was worried you'd never invite me back after I went on the rival Jesuit podcast earlier this summer. Yeah. We are keeping score, so... This is good. So we're winning now. Back in the winning column. Oh my goodness! It's been such a long time since we talked to you, though. It feels like both like an eternity. Um, But I went back and listened to the episode, and a lot of what we uh, talked about then still applies today. It was sort of like in this weird time vacuum. Okay. Yeah. I was trying to remember if we talked at the end of 2016 or early 2017. Like that's that. Like that whole three year stretch mm-hmm. is just like a memory blur. I remember having a great conversation and I was like, was that after the election or was Trump president? I yeah, honestly ear- don't know. Early 2017. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, but still talking about keeping your sanity while covering <laughs> <laughs> Trump campaign. <laughs> and I think that you, uh, there are some congratulations in order because you've become a dad since the last time we talked. So congrats. Thanks. Um, pandemic life with a toddler has both been insanely yeah. challenging and also like this, this great escape from the world too, because like he has no idea what's going on and wants to like dance around the house and like, cool, we'll just do that for an hour and not check in on reality. <laughs> Yeah. So not on. Yeah. So you have a toddler. You're covering the campaigns, and it's a pandemic. So how how are you balancing this? I've always <laughs> thought the life of an NPR reporter must be insane. Though maybe the hours of radio prepare you for having a kid like nothing else. Could. That's that's true. Um, it was pointedly pointed out to me for up first that I was never actually up first early on when when he was a baby and not <laughs> sleeping through the night. My wife was like, "Oh, you're up third this morning," and just think about that. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> What a brutal own by your spouse. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't disagree with that. Oh man. I mean, a pandemic campaign has been incredibly strange. It's only now starting to resemble a normal campaign. Um, but like I was just prepared to never be home all year and that was going to be so hard and we talked about it and we got, mm-hmm. you know, we're like, okay, here's how we can cope through this. And then, like, since March, I just never left the house. So it was just, like, a totally different challenge, but not the one I was ready for this year. Right. When you say it's just now starting to resemble a normal campaign, what what does that mean? So I can kind of divide it into... Uh, so the pandemic really set in right as Joe Biden, like, basically took over the the primary mm-hmm. and, and sealed the primary that 
took another month to kind of play out, but it was clear by the time we abruptly stopped traveling. And like, I don't think I'll ever forget being on the plane with Bernie Sanders that day and being about to take off for a rally in Ohio. And they were like, uh, rally's canceled. We don't know where we're flying. We think we're flying to Vermont. There is no event. That's it. Um, And so like from then till June was kind of one phase of never leaving the house. Then from June till about a week or so ago, it was this strange setup of Joe Biden has events in Delaware and Pennsylvania. You drive up to him. It's only reporters there. It's very heavily managed. And now Biden is, and I, and I should say I mostly focus on the Democratic side. I have a couple of colleagues covering President Trump. Biden is now starting to try to campaign like you normally do, go to Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, but also still trying to do it in that in that very careful way of having very limited crowds, mostly only reporters. But but he's going to be on the road a lot more between now and election day. Yeah, and have you been to uh, in like larger in person events yet? And how does that feel? Like how are you? talking to your <laughs> wife about that and what, what's, it, what's it like being there? I, mean, I feel like all of us have become, I, I won't speak for everyone, but like I've become so socially awkward because I don't see anyone and yeah. the few times where I've like been around new people, like I forget how to talk to them. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how's that been? Um, it's always interesting. I feel like it's interesting how fast you get used to things is like the theme of this yeah. year. Um, and I think that goes for these things too. It was incredibly uncomfortable the first few times I went to these events. Um, you know, you get there, there's maybe 15 other reporters, your your temperature is taken, you're screened, everyone's wearing a mask. And then like the Biden campaign has these circles that they put down in the gym or wherever the space is that you have to stand in to make sure everyone's spaced out. And like then I got kind of used to him. But like the more like the, the, the weirdest day was when Kamala Harris was announced as his running mate. And like normally that's like this huge rally. You, the, the running mates come out, they wave together. So they, they tried to do that for the cameras, but it was only reporters in the room. So like Biden comes out and Harris comes out and they're 10 feet apart waving and like doing the point and wave like it's a big rally. But it's just a bunch <laughs> of stone faced reporters and like we're not clapping. <laughs> it, was, it was very strange. Oh, man. And you, you were saying before you've been to a Trump rally. What ha, are the campaigns approaching these gatherings differently? Um, yes. Yes. They are approaching it very differently. Uh, Trump actually last night had an indoor rally with thousand or so people in Nevada. Um, he had been doing more kind of outdoors-ish rallies, but it's still, it's jam-packed. There's thousands of people, maybe I was I was at the rally at Latrobe, Pennsylvania, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I didn't go in. I, I just talked to people in the parking lot, but I maybe saw three masks. So it's just like the hardcore supporters are living in a different world mm-hmm. where the pandemic is is just not an issue for them. Wow, how do you uh, adjust your approach to covering those two different campaigns and maybe those two different realities that people are living in? Because you know, obviously, as a as a reporter, you you're trying to be objective, mm-hmm. but um, I imagine that you've got to tailor the way you approach covering these two different candidates no yeah yeah i think so and i think you know this is something that we're always kind of wrestling with and i think like the last couple years have have made us wrestle with it even more and i think that's mostly a good thing um but i think trying to base everything you do in like facts and reality and increasingly that is up for debate among different quarters of different people but just uh you know pointing out um you know, pointing out that there is a pandemic going on, pointing out what the local rules are at the place where this rally is happening, pointing out how they're, you know, in that case, not actually being followed and things like that. And just kind of like, even if you're 
gently and politely doing it in conversation, just kind of like putting the factual context into to conversations mm-hmm. that you're having with people and what you're covering. Yeah. I uh, wonder if there's something to this campaign too, where in a certain sense, I feel like both of these candidates are, are, are more known quantities than than last than last time around or other times so there there's a certain sense of like the horse race campaign coverage is not as effective i think you're absolutely right and i think that's probably a good thing you know and and also one one other dynamic is without that kind of day-to-day rhythm of a campaign you don't do the obvious coverage you normally would so in our sense that's been a chance to kind of actually spend more time at home doing like big issue stories like what is biden's view on foreign policy things like that Mm. The polls have consistently shown like nine in 10 Americans already knows the way they're going to vote in this election. And that was even before like this. This comes down to an enormous issue. Do you think Donald Trump is doing a good job? Are you okay with the things he says and what he does? And how do you think this pandemic is going? And like, there's really not much else to say. Yeah. You mentioned before that you kind of stick to the Democratic side. So Joe Biden, uh, if he won, would be the second Catholic president ever. Um, And there's a lot of like ways to approach like the catholic vote like some people are like there's no such thing as a catholic vote and others are like it's like they are always decisive and they're the bellwether or whatever so we want to kind of dig into that but first has has biden been i don't know using his catholic faith on the campaign trail does he see it as an asset or does he you know try to downplay it uh i think he and I, i liked your conversation last week about about the catholic vote and um I think there's a lot of ways to think about it. I think in terms of Biden's approach to it, he talks about it all the time. It's very forward in his public presentation of himself. And I think that's that's been the case for decades. I think that's just always how he's been. Like he will often talk about praying the rosary. You know, I think that that moment of the uh, of, of him and Obama and, and other officials sitting in the situation room when, when the Osama bin Laden raid happened, Biden is sitting there hold, holding rosary beads. Uh, and, and that's very much who he is. He has started going back to church the last few weeks. Um, you know, the, the reporters travel with him to church in Delaware. Uh, it, it sprinkles his speeches. He talks about theology a lot. He, he always quotes Kierkegaard, which is not a Catholic theologian, of course, but but somebody who's kind of in the mix there. Uh, and um, I feel like a ton of anecdotes, the the nuns who who taught his school growing up, which he also often tells a story about his mom yelling at one of the nuns, which is kind of funny and, you know, very shocking to hear. <laughs> oh, yeah, a good one. Now, this is uh, very different than the first Catholic president we had, JFK, where, you know, Catholicism was almost this thing that was viewed as maybe going to get in the way of governing. Yeah. What's been the like, I mean, there's a lot that's happened over, you know, since then, but what are, what are the major reasons to account for that change? Um, I think the, the consolidation and acceptance of, of Catholics as no longer as much of an other as they were before. And I think unfortunately that goes hand in hand with new, new waves of others coming in, right. That, that kind of get, Mm -hmm. get marginalized and, and, and demonized. I mean, he would only be the second Catholic president, but I think something like six of the nine Supreme Court justices are Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we've like dominated other branches of government for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's just like not, it's not like the boogeyman type faith that it was, uh, you know, a, a half century or more ago, it, I think is a big part of it. Like the fact that Biden being the second Catholic president hardly ever comes up other than the fact that it's something he talks about a lot. I mean, he talks about his Catholic faith. I don't think I've ever heard him say, and I would be the second Catholic president. Yeah. But yeah, it's not something that he feels like 
the need to even address, which I think says a lot compared to the way that Kennedy handled it. Do you get the sense that voters even care or not about a candidate's religion? Um, maybe no. I think that on the Republican side, certainly a big part of the Republican coalition that President Trump has been able to put together and keep does have to do with his willingness to make uh, evangelical Christian, white evangelical Christians priorities, a top priority for him too, when it comes to administrative orders, and especially when it comes to federal judges and the Supreme Court. Like that's something that regardless of how he feels in his personal life, he has said, this is important to you. So it's important to me. and It'll be front and center in my administration. And you have seen my colleague, Sarah McCammon, who does a ton of reporting on on politics and the evangelical community. She has said that their support from him has only increased, has only gotten more fervent, you know, despite the many different scandals that you could tick through that don't quite comport with their values because they feel like somebody is fighting for what they care about. You know, we talked about this last time we talked in 2017 about trust in media declining, especially after the 2016 election. Um, do you think that's gotten better or worse since then? Well, can I ask you too, has your trust in the mainstream media gotten better or worse? I think... NPR aside. <laughs> and if it's NPR, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I guess I would say it has gone down. Yeah. Why, why in particular? I don't know. I think what used to be a, a industry that prized itself in objectivity has kind of like, even if it never really was completely objective, mm-hmm. has like taken off the mask and is like, no, we're going to be pretty oppositional. Yeah. Like, I don't <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's my sense. I, I go back and forth. I feel like my Twitter self is more skeptical. But then when I find myself talking to my family, for example, I often am on playing defense for the media, both as you know a member of that group, but also y- y- trying to just understand that there are human beings doing that job. Yeah. And oftentimes, I've tried to point out that, look, if they're willing to make corrections and change things, that's actually a sign that you should trust them, them more. And I feel like I have seen a-, a willingness on members of the media to be more upfront and more transparent about things. And that has made me trust it more. So I think we have three big problems right now that we're handling with different degrees of success. I think the the first thing, and I I would actually agree with, with what you said, Ashley, I feel like a lot of outlets, particularly cable news outlets, have felt like it's a successful strategy to just like yell your opposition. And like in snarky tones sometimes, like snarky graphics on the on the screen, and there is they're rewarded with ratings. And I think that at the same time, while that validates people who agree with them, it turns a lot of people off into not even listening to anything they have to say. I think there's also an examination that's happened a little that's a good thing that like often when we try to be objective, we just like avoid things that make us personally uncomfortable too. like saying things that are racist that are actually racist as opposed to like racially charged right like that's just like a meaningless phrase and i think like one thing that we've seen is when there are extreme examples of that not feeling anymore like you have to not say that and i think but i think that goes back to objectivity like if if you're not saying what the fact is people aren't going to want to listen so i go back and forth and i feel like if a listener or reader doesn't trust me to include the facts that don't align with what they think is my like worldview, then like this is 
pointless and nobody's going to listen to me or trust what I have to say. But it's, it's a challenging walk on both sides. The third thing I was going to say is I think there's a cultural isolation that has to do with the fact that a ton of national reporters are coastal people who have always lived on the coast and gone to like fancy schools. Mm-hmm. And that's a big problem, too. Not like you with that Marquette high school <laughs> background. It's a little uh, bit of credibility <laughs> to go with I wonder, my New York City education. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I feel like there's a problem, too, and media means basically there's a whole gamut. I wasn't even thinking about cable. When you asked me my own the, the question, do I trust the media more? I was specifically thinking about the outlets that I read, which are not cable news shows. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a huge problem in that we, we, we group all these things together, like Tucker Carlson and, you know, NPR are, are, are both media. And so are, you know, these viral Facebook meme pages that yeah. in, in a certain sense is that's the most popular media we have today. And I, I, that I think is really murky. And in that sense, yeah, my trust has definitely gone way down. <laughs> and there's no real way to fix that because when Facebook tries to rein in those sites, especially the sites that are just like bad faith, totally made up stuff, right? Like any mm-hmm. attempt to try and rein that in seems to make people more suspicious and seems to, to, to backfire. And I don't know what the, what the fix is. Yeah, maybe this is just my own perspective, but it seems like NPR has been able to kind of stay true to itself <laughs> throughout this. <laughs> we've, um, I mean, we've had a lot of internal conversations, which I think are a good thing. I think we're always heartened when a lot of polls of like, who do you trust comes out? We like consistently yeah. do well with, with all political spectrums. And that's a good thing. We're probably more cautious than other outlets in adapting our approach. But again, I think caution is a good thing when it comes to this stuff. Right. Every four years, people say this is the most important election in our lifetime. Is that hype that you buy into, are cautious of, aware of? Um, I usually find it really annoying. (laughs) I think probably one of the most important elections of our, I don't know, when you want to start, let's say like the last 40 years, like might have been the Mm -hmm. 2000 election, which was a super low stakes status quo election that nobody really got too engaged Mm -hmm. in. And it was about like what to do with the surplus of the, you know, which is like comical. And then, of course, like 9-11 happens, the Iraq war happens. And I think the entire trajectory of the country changes. So, I mean, it's always... A suspicious thing to say. I think the one thing that is true of this election is that there is a massive fundamental choice in like the mood of the country, the way the country is going to be governed, the 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 a lot of fundamental aspects of how our government works seem to be on the table in this election in a way that has not been the case in previous ones. And I think that's an important thing. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot. Whoever wins, I'm worried about the fabric of our country just being torn apart like whoever wins and i don't know are you (laughs) worried about that (laughs) one of the tough things of this year has been like uh how grim i viewed things and you know i don't usually i I like to be an optimist and i like to think of like hopeful things and i feel like it's yeah there's a lot of ways that's hard to see that and i think especially like 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 i've been saying a lot of the times i kind of focus on the democratic side of things this year and then just like spending a few days the other week, like deep in MAGA hat Trump superfan world. It's just like we're all living on different planets here. And like the lack of faith in the other side's leaders makes me very worried about how that all gets walked back. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Last time we talked about the pace of news had become such that it was this unsustainable all the time. Like every every month was like the month leading up to the election yeah. for you. Do you think that? this new reality is unique to President Trump? Or do you think that Americans will go back to reading 
less news if <laughs> Joe Biden wins. Um, I guess if that happens, we can check in on what our ratings for our podcast are this time <laughs> next year. I yeah. mean, one of the dynamics of this race that I don't think we fully appreciated, and it's kind of hard to pull, so I don't really think we'll know an answer, is like, how many people are just like sick of it and just want to go to having a really mm -hmm. boring president. And I think like there's a substantial chunk of Americans who would feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of it does have to do with President Trump, but I think we've now like primed our online news system, our cable news system, you know, just like the way that NPR has changed, how quickly it gets things out and like how many daily podcasts we have compared to a few years ago. Like we are all living in the world that has arranged for that. But I mean, like on the other hand, how many of these enormous stories that are happening, like wildfires, massive uh, protests, some social unrest, climate change, a pandemic, like none of that has to do with President Trump. And that's all still going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm really uplifting today. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I was going to say, let's let's end with like, you know, what, <laughs> what are you doing in your personal or prayer or faith life that's like helping you stay <laughs> grounded and together through all of this. Yeah, this is going to start downery, but I don't mean it to be as downery. So stay with me. Um, I have, I don't know how you felt, but I have increasingly found a challenge of like feeling engaged by Zoom church. Um, oh yeah, no, oh, it's 100%. Yeah. <laughs> and it's tough. And like math has returned in some places here and I've still like not quite felt, like I feel like I'm already kind of being in some risky situations as a reporter and it feels like that's maybe mm -hmm. one less one I could go. So that's been a struggle at times, and I feel like I've tried to like get it through reading or just kind of like doing the readings myself or finding other ways. Like a lot of the time that I've kind of been able to clear my brain and think about stuff like that has been just like going on walks. Like there's like a beautiful monastery in my neighborhood, for example, and walking around mm -hmm. like that. So I think just kind of like the same answer that I was talking a lot about when we talked four years ago of stepping away from the internet goes like such a long way and yeah. taking... Like, I take Twitter off my phone every time I can. Like, I basically only have Twitter on my phone now when I'm, like, out in the world reporting a story. And that goes a long way. Once my brain unfuzzed at, at a certain point this spring with the pandemic, just, like, reading about things that have nothing to do with reality has helped a lot, too. Hmm. Yeah. So, like, Dune, are you getting ready for that? Is it the <laughs> I've never read Dune, but I watched the trailer and I was like, maybe I should. I don't know. Or just, like, a lot of history and then, like, just, like, yeah, off-the-wall science fiction. <laughs> yeah, I um, I wonder if we're going to look back on this time and at least be hopefully a little grateful for the struggle to like maintain this some semblance of a prayer life because it has been tough. You're you're totally you're hitting it yeah. right on the head without without mass and trying just trying these like random different things all all in an attempt to you know stay grounded. Hopefully, yeah. there's going to be grace that comes out of that. I hope so, and I think like. When you look at big crises, like crises, the idea of like big reform comes out of big crisis on, on like a national and global yeah. level. That's an optimistic thing. And I think also like in personal lives, realizing what you took for granted and being appreciative when it comes back. Like how great was it the first time that you saw your friends in an outdoor setting, right? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Incredible. You've never thought about that before. I mean, like you no. enjoyed hanging out with your friends, but you weren't that grateful. And I think like maybe when we can be in communities, that will be hopefully something that we we still appreciate even if hopefully the pandemic is far far in the rear view mirror all right well we do have one final question for you um and i hope you're prepared and we, we uh just to remind you last time you canonized uh J.R. tolkien so we're gonna we're looking for something different <laughs> yes um but if you canonize one person living or dead catholic or not fictional or real who would it be and why 
Have you found that other people who it's their second time through the podcast, this was a harder answer than the first time? Mm. Yeah. Because I overthought it. I was like, I know the question's coming. No, having had to answer it multiple times, you know, when like at live shows or whatever, (laughs) I would, I agree. I'm like, I I can only say my mom (laughs) once. (laughs) (laughs) So I do have an answer. It kind of clicked in last night. I wasn't, I was going back and forth. Um, At a certain point this year, when we were looking at a massive possible depression level unemployment, and also Joe Biden started talking a lot about Franklin Roosevelt as like somebody that he viewed what he was trying to do through. I um, started like kind of going down that hole of history and reading a bunch of books about the Roosevelt administration, which I hadn't really done before. And one person who consistently jumps out to me as somebody who I would, I would nominate would be Eleanor Roosevelt especially in the context of I've been reading a lot about the way, you know, over the last year we have talked more this summer specifically, we've talked more about who's included and who's not included and like who fits into the political coalition and who doesn't and who's marginalized. And what really struck me is the way that like, there's no other word, but harassed, but she just harassed her husband throughout his entire presidency to, to widen the scope and to care more about marginalized people And to make sure that like in the way that like black people were totally left out of the New Deal policies, like she was constantly harassing him to change that and to even make kind of token considerations to that effect. And like when it came to allowing more immigrants into the country uh, during World War Two, when when Jewish people were desperately trying to get out of Europe and no one wanted to take them, she was like bothering him every single day with letters and statements and, oh, I saw this and can you do this? And like oftentimes she wasn't fully successful, but just like the persistence to keep pushing for that is something that is really impressive to me and 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 puts her on the list. All right. That's, that, that is definitely a first. I don't think anyone's canonized Eleanor Roosevelt. So, <laughs> all right. St. Eleanor Roosevelt, pray for us. <laughs> Scott, what, what do you want to plug right now? Oh. <laughs> NPR Politics Podcast? Yeah, the, the Politics Podcast. Um, we also... I, you know what, here, here's what I'll do. Since I'm talking to podcast listeners, I will plug your real live radio. It's a thing. It's podcasts all the time, 24 hours a day. You can tune in. We have programs. Um, your local public radio station is what I will plug. Love <laughs> that. Amazing. <laughs> what's your, what's your uh, radio setup in your house? We've got, uh, this morning, my son was demanding I turn the news off, which was a first and I'm sure not a last. <laughs> Oh wow, <laughs> that's it's a moment to mark mark it down in the calendar. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got a nice radio that fitting the fact that I do podcasts and real radio. It's got a Bluetooth function too that I can play podcasts through it. But you know, most of the time it's either on um, on WAMU or uh, or the Nationals radio broadcast. All right, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on again, Scott. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Sorry, I was such a downer at points. <laughs> hey, that's all right. There's uh, the next couple months will hopefully be more uplifting. <laughs> oh man! But seriously, good luck. It's going to be really, really busy. I know. So you're you're in our prayers. Thanks. It's. Uh, I'm glad your new season is back, uh, so I can follow all the encyclical news through you guys. Huh. Great. We'll be. We'll keep it coming. <laughs> All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. Uh, If you've stuck around this long, you probably enjoy politics. (laughs) And uh, 
If so, we have a great podcast recommendation for you. That's right. So America is launching a brand new podcast series called Voting Catholic, and it's exploring the top voting issues in the United States from abortion to immigration to racial justice by sharing voices of experts, activists, but also really looking at these issues through the lens of personal storytelling and sociopolitical analysis from a Catholic perspective. Um, it's hosted by Sebastian Gomes, and it launches the first week of October, and it's really a really good deep dive into what's at stake you know, in this election, but also politics doesn't stop after Election Day in November, right? And so these issues are going to remain important, and so this is a great primer for the political theology that you know American Catholics should have a grasp on Right. So keep your eyes peeled for Voting Catholic wherever you get your favorite podcasts. All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I've got a desolation this week that, I don't know, I'm still sort of recovering from everything. The, the, the summer of not talking about this on the show, so I'm sort of catching up. Um, I think like a lot of people, the weight of everything going on just sort of hits at different times in different ways where I, I don't know, I'll just like when I was sitting down to pray this week, it just, I was just like, ah, gosh, I'm really tired. I'm exhausted from just like all of the different things happening. And, you know, on the surface, like I'm healthy, I've got my job. So does my family. Um, but you know, I'm still watching a lot of people go through a lot of difficult things, um, pandemic related and not, but just the thing that's really sitting with me and I found myself, you know, calling out to God for help for was that a response to this like very big problem, big and personal problem, the pandemic, feels like we're all sort of fighting it either alone or in different factions or at the very least like none of this response feels united in any way. Mm -hmm. I am the first person to sort of like caution against people calling out for for unity for the sake of unity when when tough topics come out up and tensions arise. Um, but I was talking to Father Sundrup about this, and he very wisely pointed out to me that, you know, there are creative tensions and creative divisions um, where the Holy Spirit's at work and, you know, we're being invited to move to something else. Um, but that is not what this really feels like. Um, you know, people can't agree on how serious to take the pandemic. They can't agree, even in our own church, right? We've got like different responses in different dioceses about how and when to come back to mass. And that just immediately gets sorted into the typical cultural roar um, divisions that are playing out. And it just feels like it's all spiraling into this sense of isolation rather than coming together to solve mm -hmm. a problem. Um, and Father Sandra pointed out to me that it's important, even if there's not really consolation in this moment, it's important to name what specifically this type of tension is so that the next time this division or uncomfortability comes up, we can sort of distinguish it between the type that is fruitful and from the spirit and the type that is not. Yeah. So I'm, I'm at least naming that saying like, <laughs> you know, God, this sucks right now and I'm really tired. Um, and it's not yeah. the tired that you, you have after a long run, right? It's like the, the tired that you just like don't want to get out of bed for. Yeah. That's so, interesting that that's what your desolation is because my consolation kind of plays on the same feel of like isolation but in a good way oh um, great i guess that means you're an extrovert not an introvert <laughs> yeah i <laughs> but suppose no. so <laughs> but no i was it really was i was i was also bringing 
you know, the last few months to prayer in a desperate attempt to get ready for this show, as, as is my custom. Um, and for and Judgment Day. That, yep. Yes. <laughs> um, and something that, like, I kept thinking about is how, like, in the last few months, like, there are, like, five-day periods where I, like, haven't really seen anyone. Like, I, I spend a vast majority of my time alone in my studio apartment maybe talking to the person at Rite Aid or, you know, you know, talking on work meetings, but not having actual face-to-face interactions with someone. Um, and I was like, wow, like, that's kind of crazy. Um, let me think about that. And I think in the past, I've often thought about um, my uh, being alone as like a defect in some way. It's like, you know, before the pandemic, if I was alone, it meant that like I didn't have enough friends. And <laughs> during the pandemic, it was like, if I was alone, it meant I was being like selfish and not reaching out to other people. Um, and I kind of just like stopped. I tried to stop listening to that judgmental voice of like being alone means like you're a loser <laughs> and, and took it kind of as like a thing as like, okay, maybe this is like the fact that I am comfortable being alone could be a strength in some ways uh, to validate that potential thought. I looked up a quote from Thomas Merton that I kind of remembered that said, the man who fears to be alone will never be anything but lonely, no matter how much he may surround himself with people. And so I was like, okay, if, if I am actually comfortable being alone, which I really am, like maybe I should see that not as a defect, but like as an invitation to find God there, which like, I don't know if I've actually started doing that, but I've at least been able to like stop listening to that voice that says there's something wrong with me because I'm okay being alone and seen it as an invitation to dive into something else. So Mm. that was kind of consoling. Yeah. That's a lot of, man, you just summarized, I feel like a lot of work (laughs) that you've done on yourself. Like so, so eloquently and briefly. Um, That said though, we should hang out soon. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's have another margarita after this recording. <laughs> Agreed. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. All right, Ashley, uh, get us out of here. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundruff. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>